We're so glad that you've joined us today on the Relevant Church Podcast. There's so much God wants to do in and through you as you listen to this message. If you want to learn more about Relevant Church, visit us online at thisisrelevant.cc. So we're in the last installment of our message series called Not Today, Satan. This series has been all about overcoming the lies, the deceptions, and the limiting beliefs that the enemy tries to throw on you to keep you playing small. All of us were created to live life and life abundantly. That's what Jesus Christ came to do for you and I. So the moment you say yes to Jesus, you are introduced to a new life, a limitless life that you've never experienced before. And it's supposed to start right here on earth. A lot of times when we become Christians, we're trying to run away from hell so that we can get to heaven. But Jesus said, man, listen, heaven starts right here on earth for you if you're a believer. But the enemy does not want you to know that. He wants to throw all types of thoughts, all types of limiting beliefs, all types of lies, and and he will try to deceive you to make you believe that you are a lot smaller and that you have a limited access to the abundance that God has for you. So I want to tell you right now is today is going to be a game changer if you allow it to be. If you lean into what God, I believe, wants to say to you and I, Today could be the day that flips your world upside down. Let me tell you, I don't know if you remember growing up uh, when color TVs came out. Yes, I just aged myself. So some of you guys grew up in the tech world, so you guys didn't have to worry about color TVs. You guys actually had color on your cell phones. I remember the day when the cell phone was just green and orange. and. But anyway... Back in the day when color TV first came out, it was the most exhilarating thing because you're so used to watching something in black and white, and now you're seeing it in color. And then HD came out, and everybody was like, man, I am into that HD. And then they took it a step up to Blu-ray. I remember going to the video store. I don't know about you, but I remember those days. I'm I'm a nostalgic. I think that's the word. Um, I loved going to the video store. I love being able to go in and rent the videos. And there was this place called Family Video in our area and you could tell the HD videos had clear cases and the Blu-ray videos had blue cases. Uh, When Blu-ray came out, I'm like, I don't even want HD. I want Blu-ray. And now they've taken it a step further. We've got 8K. We've got crystal lens. We've got all types of stuff. Can I tell you, today you can go from watching your life in black and white, watching your life in HD, or you can go to watching your life in 8K Blu-ray, crystal clear, because if you lean into this word, I believe God wants to show you how to blow the limits off, blow the lies away so that you can walk into the abundance that he's called you to live in. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive into the text. God, I just thank you for your faithfulness, your kindness. Thank you for bringing us from all over the world to be able to watch this together. God, I pray that you would speak to us in the only way you can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, I've got a couple of kids. Actually, I've got three kids, and I'm blessed to have three boys. When my wife and I uh, got married, there was one prayer that we had was that we wanted three boys. We didn't want any girls. Listen, uh, girls are awesome. Uh, God bless everyone who's a girl dad. Listen, I champion the girl dads. You're probably a better man than me. But I knew my blood pressure couldn't take having a girl. You know, when they turn around 16, 17, start getting boy crazy or guys start getting into, yeah, no. 
I'm glad that I got all boys. So we prayed for all boys. And I love my boys. But anyone who has multiple kids knows that kids are all built different. All of your kids have their own personalities, uh, their own uh, way of approaching life. And my kids are the same way in the way they approach me as well, too. They, they're all different. So I've got one kid when I want to ask him to do something. I'm saying, hey, you want to go to the store with me? You want to run this errand with me? He always is like, nah, dad, I'm good. I'm good, dad. I'm chilling. Uh, I'm, I'm watching TV or I'm on the phone or I'm playing this game or I got this thing to do. Like every time I invite him to do something uh, with me, he always has another thing to do. And every time I want to uh, invite him into uh, just hanging out with me, he always has another thing to do. But then I've got another kid. One kid always wants to come with me. He always wants to volunteer showing up with me wherever I'm going. Dad, I want to go with you. Dad, can I go with you? Dad, can I go with you? But I've realized that the only reason he wants to go with me is because he wants to get something out of it. He knows that if he goes with me and we go to the store, he's going to get a piece of candy. He's going to get a toy. He's going to find some way to get me to get him something. So I've realized that every time he says, Dad, I got my clothes ready. I'm all, I'm all done. I've done everything that I needed to do. So can I come with you now? That he technically doesn't really want to come with me. He just wants to get something out of me. And I've realized that many of us show up to Jesus that way. We're either the kid who says, no, not right now, Jesus. No, I can't do that right now, Jesus. I can't go with you right now, Jesus, because I've got all these other things to do. I've got work things. I've got family things that I have to take care of. And I know that you would love me to be on mission with you that way, but I can't do that with you because I've got another thing. Or maybe we approach Jesus as like, Jesus, man, I want to be with you. I want to follow you because ultimately I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. I want to secure eternal life. And I know if I'm on your team, I can secure eternal life. So the reality is we don't really want to be with Jesus. We just don't want to be in hell. And there's a story in Mark chapter 10 that I believe illustrates this so, so well. It's a story about a young man that approaches Jesus. Now, what you need to know is that Jesus always walked around with an entourage. Uh, he always had his disciples with him, or there were crowds that were following him. I mean, there were thousands of people who had heard about Jesus, wanted to be close to Jesus. Jesus had uh, haters in the crowd, and he had people who loved him in the crowd. He had fans in the crowd. He had followers in the uh, crowd. But he also had foes in the crowd. So it's this mix of eclectic group of people who are always around Jesus. And this is where we find this young man approaching Jesus when Jesus is getting ready to make a trip uh, to uh, another uh, town. This young man finds Jesus, finds his way and works through the crowd. And he pushes through every single person and gets finally at the feet of Jesus. And this is what it says in Mark chapter 10, verse 17. It says, and as he was setting out on his journey, talking about Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The first lesson that we've got to learn here is sincere questions lead to sincere answers. 
Sincere questions need to uh, lead to sincere answers. Now, check this out. This man shows up in front of this whole crowd. Jesus standing right there and he kneels down at Jesus feet like he takes a posture of humility. He gives Jesus a sign of honor. He humbles himself in front of everyone and then he calls Jesus good teacher. And there's something about Jesus that he sees is good. That is something that is special about this man. And, and as historians and, and, and people who've studied the text and studied Jewish history uh, have noted that this is the first and only time a Jewish contemporary addresses Jesus like that. That there's no one else uh, who addressed Jesus like that. This man comes, fights his way throughout the whole crowd, has heard good things about Jesus, has had pro probably heard negative things about Jesus, but doesn't care because there's something that he sees in Jesus that he can connect to, that he wants, and he falls at Jesus' feet. And I've got to think this guy has got some keen spiritual insight into who Jesus is. His heart is in the right place. He wants eternal life. Uh, he wants to see what life is after death. See, in this time period, there are individuals who believed in life after death. And then there were people who didn't believe in life after death. Just kind of like right now. There are people who think that we are on this world uh, and we're just spinning on this ball on earth in the galaxy, in the cosmos, and our life really means nothing. And once we die, that's the end of it, and we cease to exist. There's nothing more. Our life was nothing but a breath. And then there are others who believe that there's more to this life. That we are spiritual beings and when our body and our flesh wastes our way, our eternal spiritual being gets to exist with Christ eternally. And so he is in this camp where he believes that there is more to life after death. And he comes up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? He's like, what must I do? He, he uses that term. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I don't know about you, but don't you wish life had an easy button? Don't you wish life had a playbook, a manual of how to get things done? Hey, uh, hello, husbands. Uh, does any of you ever do any of you ever wish your wife came with a manual? Parents, do you ever wish that your kids came with the manual? I know because I've got three of them. And I'm trying to figure out how to juggle different personalities, different thought processes. Uh, uh, students, don't you wish uh, education and smarts and intellect came with the manual? Just tell me I got to do these things and I'll be the smartest person. This young man is like, man, Jesus, can you tell me the plan of action? I would love to inherit eternal life. I know that there's life after death. I know that there's a possibility of more than this world. And the lesson that we learn from there is that sincere questions lead to sincere answers. In verse 18, it tells us that Jesus responds to him and said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. I'm pretty sure this was not the answer that he was looking for. I'm pretty sure he was waiting for Jesus to break down a three-point message on how he can get to heaven. 
I'm pretty sure he was sitting there longing with bated breath to, to, to hear the words of this holy man, this good man that would let him know what shall I do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus answers him in a pretty snarky way. And let me tell you something. If I grew up around the time Jesus did, if I was a contemporary of Jesus, I honestly probably wouldn't have liked Jesus. Because Jesus always answered people in the most interesting ways. Sometimes he was just playing out rude, in my opinion. That's just my opinion. Listen, that's, that's just my own opinion. But Jesus sees this man, and I can see it in my, in my sanctified imagination, as this man has, 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 has broke through the crowd. He has humbled himself. He's put himself out there like, like, I have nothing else. I've got nothing else left. I'm just going to put myself at the feet of Jesus. I'm going to humble myself. Uh, I don't care what anybody thinks of me. I don't care what anybody says about me. And I'm going to get my answer from Jesus. And I could just picture Jesus uh, walking and sees this guy falls at his feet and is like looking at his disciples and is like, who is this guy? Really? Good? The only one is good, but God. So what are you saying? Am I God? You know, he's sitting there interacting with this guy. And I guarantee you that is not the answer that this young man was looking at or looking for. But the man saw something really amazing about Jesus. I don't know if he recognized the implications of calling Jesus a good teacher. I don't know if he really meant at the deepest level what he was saying to Jesus or if he knew what he was saying to Jesus at the deepest level. Did he know this was the life saver himself? Did he know that Jesus is in whom life began with? Did he know that he was standing before the pre-incarnate Christ who was the creator of the entire world, the word of God, the one who went out and created the lands, the seas and the trees and formed man into his image? Lesson that we take out of this is how you view Jesus will determine how you receive Jesus. How you view Jesus will determine how you receive Jesus. I remember I was uh, watching uh, a TV show with my son, The Fresh Prince. I don't know if you guys uh, ever watched The Fresh Prince growing up. It was a great TV show. In fact, on the last episode when Will hugs Uncle Phil and I just cried. I think everybody in the house was crying at that point. But um, we're not talking about that. Uh, there's an episode with Jeffrey, who was the butler to uh, the family sitting outside and he's having some tea and a, a lady comes in from next door and she's dressed in the black and white uniform of uh, the butler uh, culture and she comes over and asks to borrow some Lysol. He is absolutely smitten by this woman. He just like falls in love with this woman. He hears the angels singing, the, uh, the heavens open up. He's like, man, this is it. I found somebody who's just like me and she lives next door. I'm a butler. She's a butler. I don't know if 
that's what they call women, maid, butler, or whatever. Um, but she is just like me. And so he invites her to have some tea with her. She eventually invites him out on a date. And they go out on this date, and it's amazing. And when he walks her home back to the neighbor's house, uh, he ends up kissing her on the front doorstep. And the door swings open, and the butler of the house shoots outside, and he says, Jeffrey, what are you doing? And he says, dude, what are you doing? I'm minding my own business. He's like, why are you here? I thought she was the butler or the maid of the house. And he says, no, that is not the butler or the maid of the house. He is like, that is the heir to the fortune of this huge billion dollar company. And Jeffrey recognizes that when he thought this was just a good woman, he found out that this was actually an incredibly wealthy woman. And can I tell you, many of, uh, many of us have a keen recognition of the magnificence of Jesus Christ. But many of us don't have a recognition of the sovereign majesty of who Jesus Christ is. We know that he is good, but do we know that he is great? We know that Jesus is good, but do we know that he is holy? We know that Jesus is good, but do we know that this is the life giver, the life sustainer? We know that he is good, but do we really recognize the full gravity of the fact that he is God? It's like if I gave you a diamond ring to Stuart for me. And I said, hey, I'm going on a trip, but I don't want to lose this. Can you hold this diamond ring for me? And I'm pretty sure you would take good care of it. However... What would happen if you found out that this diamond ring wasn't just worth $1,000, but it was actually worth $10 million? It kind of changes the way you look at the ring. It changes the way you steward the ring. It changes the way you protect the ring because you wouldn't want to lose something so precious. And I'm wondering if this young man that has fallen at Jesus' feet has recognized this is just not an average good guy, but this is the great God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who is to save the world through his sacrifice, the Messiah. It goes on. In verse 19 through 20, Jesus continues on in his response. After he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Jesus gives him a list of the Ten Commandments. He says, hey, you want to inherit eternal life? You know what to do in the commandments. And for a young Jewish man who I'm assuming this young man was, uh, because this is the culture in which Jesus is in, uh, these Ten Commandments are very familiar because by the time they are 15 years old, they've already uh, memorized the Torah, the first uh, five books of the Bible. They, are, uh, they understand the commandments. They live the commandments. They honor the commandments every single day. It is something that they wake up learning about. It's something that they go to sleep learning about. It's something that they spend 
spend all of their adolescent years being taught because the commandments and the book of the law was very foundational to their culture. And so he is like, dude, this is easy work. I see it. The Ten Commandments, I can get that. That, that. that is attainable. I can reach that. I can get there. How do we know that he realizes that? Because in verse 20, he goes on and says this, and he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. Dude, I can do that. I've done that. So that means eternal life is already in the bag for me. I'm already in. I already know what to do. I've done everything that needs to be accomplished. I've already made the plan. I've already worked the plan. And now I'm getting the benefit of the plan. Have you ever had to take a test that you were so afraid to take? And then when you walked in and it was placed in front of you, it was as if the answers all jumped off. And you were like, dude, I studied this. I know this. I got this in the bag. Well, I don't even know why I worried about this. Ever had that moment where you're just like, man, there is so much clarity and you're excited. You're like, man, I'm in like Flynn. There's no issue right now. I'm going to pass this test. Or have you ever approached something where you're, you're, you're building something and at first it looks like a daunting task and then it, you kind of look at the directions and you realize this thing is a lot easier than it actually uh, looks and it's a lot less complicated and then you start to build it and it just flows like water and before you know it, you're done. This young man is in this moment where he realizes, man, I've got the bag. I am in heaven right now because there's nothing more I got to do. But there's a but. In all he's done, in following all of the commandments, there's still an incompleteness. How do we know? How do we know? Because in verse 17, the young man comes to Jesus' feet, kneels before him, and asks him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This young man had done everything right. He had followed all the commandments. He followed all the rules. He followed all the observations. But yet, there was still something inside of him that knew that he was incomplete. There was still something inside of him that knew that he wasn't truly fulfilled. And can I tell you a lesson that we can take away from this? Obedience does not automatically equal fulfillment. Obedience doesn't equal fulfillment. He's still coming to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? If all the doing would have been enough, he would have been somewhere partying and enjoying life and not at the feet of Jesus, wondering why his life was still incomplete. And how many of us are have been doing our relationships? How many of us have been doing our jobs? How many of us have been doing our life? How many of us have been doing our faith? How many of us have been doing church? And we look at our relationships and we look at our life and we look at our jobs and, and, and you're asking yourself, why is it that I'm constantly doing all the right things but I still feel unsatisfied? Why am I doing all that is required of me, yet I'm still feeling incomplete? Why am I doing all of these things, but yet still unfulfilled? 
I'm doing all the right things. And many of us come to God and say, God, I go to church. I give. I volunteer. I'm doing all the things that it's supposed to uh, tell me to do that that life is is uh, my my pastor told me to do that. My parents told me to do. I'm doing. I'm doing. I'm doing. I'm being obedient. God. But why am I still feeling incomplete? Why am I still feeling unfulfilled? See, this young man recognized that even in his obedience, he discovered a disconnection. Obedience does not equal fulfillment. It goes on in verse 21. And Jesus looking at him and loved him. Jesus looking at him and loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. This is such a big text. It's so easy to look at this and and quickly gloss past it. But there's something significant that we have to look at. Jesus looked at him and loved him. See, in his responses, Jesus was not trying to trap him. Jesus was not trying to trip him up. Jesus was not trying to prove a point that he was insufficient or incomplete. Jesus simply loved him and invited him into a closer relationship. And can I tell you right now, Jesus is not out to get you. Jesus is all about loving you. There's nothing that you must do for Jesus to love you. There's nothing that you must do to get Jesus to look at you. Can I tell you something right now? Uh, When Jesus created the heavens and the earth, he had you on his mind. When Jesus went to the cross, he had you on his mind. When Jesus resurrected on the third day and ascended to heaven, he said, Lo, I will be back to come and get you. He had you on his mind. There's nothing that you must do to earn Jesus' love. There's nothing you must do to earn Jesus' attention. Jesus already loves you. Jesus is already looking at you. And Jesus is inviting you today to take a step further, to take a step deeper, to take a step closer into relationship with him. Jesus looked at him, and loved him. Notice it didn't say, hey, listen, this is what you got to do, young man. Uh, uh, go sell all your stuff, give it to the poor, come follow me, and then I'll see you and I'll love you. Jesus began looking at him and Jesus loved him. And this is what we can learn from here. Jesus' love is expressed by invitation, not dependent on expectations. Jesus is not expecting anything from you. Jesus is inviting you to enter into the love and to receive the love that he's already showered and given on you. Jesus says, sell everything. Give everything away to the poor. And then come follow me. See, Jesus is not just simply asking him to give up his attachment. Jesus is asking him and inviting him to change his affections. 
This is not another thing to do. This is a new way to be. This is not another task that he had to check off the list. This was an entire radical shift in who he was and how he would show up. And can I tell you, the kingdom of heaven is not a kingdom that is achieved by doing. There is nothing you can do to inherit eternal life. Receiving Jesus is a posture of affection. Not another task to accomplish. But what I love about this text is that no matter how much Jesus loved him, no matter how much Jesus saw him, no matter how much Jesus connected to this young man's sincerity, Jesus would not lower his expectations. Jesus said, listen, I don't expect you to do anything. I expect you to be something. To walk with new affections. With walking with a new vision in mind. Verse 22, it tells us that disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possession. Disheartened. The young man was disheartened. This term disheartened in Greek is stagnazo. It means he was angered. He was appalled. It it gives the picture of when the the day is sunny and everything is beautiful, then the storm cloud comes in and, and the sky becomes disturbed and it becomes cloudy and dark. And that was happening in this young man's heart. He came with joy. He came with with excitement and he was leaving cloudy. He was leaving leaving angry. How dare you ask me to give up everything? He was leaving frustrated. He was leaving appalled that God, that Jesus would ask him to give up all of his possessions. And it's interesting because all through scripture we see people show up to Jesus cloudy and leave with joy. But this young man shows up with joy and leaves cloudy and angered and frustrated and he just wanted to, uh, to to have an opportunity to perform and do all the things and he was like Jesus this doesn't make sense you told me that in order to inherit eternal life I've got to do these things and I've done these things how dare you ask me to show up in a different way how dare you ask me to step out into the unknown how dare you ask me to turn my heart and my life over to you I thought all I had to do was check a box all I had to do was show up to church. All I had to do was give a little bit. All I had to do was volunteer at the shelter. All I had to do was show up every night and and not have to tell my wife that I loved her or my husband that I loved him. All I had to do was buy stuff for my kids and not really spend time with my kids. All I had to do was perform and I would get in. And can I tell you, Jesus is not impressed by performance, but by passion. Jesus doesn't care what you do. He cares about where your heart disposition is. And this is how the enemy keeps us playing small. He keeps us focused on performance rather than developing passion. 
Because he knows that passion will lead to a radical shift in how we show up in our lives, how we show up in our marriages, and how we show up in our parenting, and how we show up on our jobs, and how we show up in our, uh, in our schools, and ultimately how we show up in our faith. The enemy wants to keep us playing small by have us focusing on the checklist. I must do, I must do, I must do, I must do. What would happen if you traded in your checklist and entered with a renewed passion? What would happen if you began to look at your life as a blessing, your job as a blessing, as a gift, as an honor that God is bestowing upon you as a stewardship and you begin to work with passion rather than with performance? See, he wanted a checklist to inherit eternal life. But Jesus wanted to introduce him to the heart of God that will open the door to the kingdom of heaven. In verse 23, it tells us this. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And for so long, I I heard this preached and I understood this as to mean that it's hard for rich people to get into heaven because they have all these possessions. And and it's hard for people with a lot of money to get into heaven because they want to let that go. But if we look at the literal translation of what Jesus is saying, it says this. Jesus would have said this. How hard it is for those who have things. You don't have to be a millionaire to have things. You don't have to be in the upper echelon of society to have things. I got things and you got things. We all got things. How hard is it for people who have things to enter the kingdom of heaven? How hard is it for those who have work things? How hard is it for those who have family things? How hard is it for those who have money things? How hard is it for people who have kid things and business things and relationship things? How hard is it for people who have doubt things? How hard is it for people who have worry things? How hard is it for people who have unsure things and anxiety things? And let me ask you this. What's that thing standing in your way? I'm going to say it again. What's that thing that's standing in your way of your ability to connect with Jesus? What thing are you placing of value More than a relationship and a deeper connection with Jesus. Are you a checklist Christian? Uh, Checklist Christians would rather settle for obedience to the law of God. Rather than being moved by the heart of God. See, checklist Christians love to show up to church. And check off the box. Uh, Checklist Christians love to say, hey, you know, I read the Bible this morning. I did my prayers. 
rather than develop a relationship with God. Checklist Christians would rather say, hey, you know, I paid my tithe. And can I tell you guys something right now? We don't pay tithes. We return tithes because it was never us to begin with. God gave it to us in stewardship so that we can use it for his glory. And can I tell you, Satan is satisfied with checklist Christians. Because as long as they are not moved with passion for and by the heart of God, they're not a threat to the kingdom of darkness. Can I tell you, Satan is more threatened by the individual who doesn't know Jesus who's walking down the street than he is by the Christian who shows up to church and checks a list and performs and says, hey, you know what? I'm good as long as I do these things. The person who's walking down the street can have a radical encounter with Jesus Christ and his world will be transformed and his affections will be changed and he will move with passion for the heart of God. But so many Christians are are sitting in church pews moved by nothing more than the checklist to prove that they've done what they needed to do because they know that as long as they do it, I get in the kingdom. And Jesus says, I am not impressed by your performance. I am moved by your passion. Are you moved by the heart of God? Or are you a checklist Christian? God is inviting you to trade in your checklists, your key performance indicators, your ideas of what your ROI should look like when you show up to church and when you're obedient to God, your expectations of what you'll get when you do. And God is inviting you to step into the unknown. See, where where you shed the checklist and pursue knowing the heart of God. See, the heart of God will take you into the unknown. And the unknown is where the kingdom of God is. See, the unknown is where life is. See, the unknown is where transformation is. And that's where true life is. Jesus obviously shares all of this in front of his disciples. And all of them are blown away. And they begin to ask, well, uh, if wealthy people can't go into the kingdom, who the heck's going to get in? And the reason they're asked this question, uh, unbeknownst to popular belief, the disciples weren't broke guys walking around. Remember, the disciples had fishing companies. They were tax collectors. These were individuals who were part of the haves in society. And so now they're confounded. They're saying, man... Who can get in? If wealthy people can't get in, does that mean we can't get in? And so they begin to say, but Jesus, we've left everything. We've walked away from everything to follow you. And Jesus says to them in verse 29, 
Truly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, not in eternity, not later on, not when they die. He says now who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. Let me not lie to you. Following Jesus is not going to be easy. Following Jesus might be one one of the hardest things you're going to do. But guess what? You will receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses, brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. You get the cake and get to eat it too. Jesus says all you have to do is follow me. Change your heart. Change your disposition to pursue my heart. Invite me into your heart so that my passion can drive you, so that my heart can move you. It's interesting. I have three sons. One who doesn't ever want to come to me or come with me because there's other things. And then I've got another who only comes with me because he knows that he's going to get something out of me. But then I've got a third son. This third son is my shadow. Wherever I go, he goes. Whatever I do, he does. Whatever I wear, he wants to go in his closet and find something just like it. Wherever I'm at, he wants to be. And every time I'm leaving the house, he's like, Dad, can I come with you? Can I come where you're going? Can I sit with you? Can I be with you? And I'll say, son, you're going to be bored. Son, where I'm going to go is a meeting. Son, you may not want to come. You won't have a good time. Son, I'm not going to be going out to eat. And he says, Dad, I just want you. I just want to be with you. I just want to sit with you. I just want to be around you. And I wonder if there's somebody who is watching this today who is willing to trade in the attachments, who's willing to trade in the checklist to just say, Jesus, I just want you. I just want to be with you. I just want to be where you are. I just want to sit with you because Jesus does not care about your performance. He cares about your passion. And if you have a passion for Jesus, that will open the door to the fullness of the glory of God living inside of you, around you, and you will receive the inheritance in this life, and not only this life, but in the life to come, eternal life. So which one are you? Are you the Christian with the checklist? Or are you the individual with the things that has always had excuses why you can't put your passion in Christ? Or are you willing to say today, Jesus, I just want you. Tell me what moves your heart. Because I just want to move you. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 tells us this. That for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That he was rich. 
yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's passion. That's being moved. And today Jesus wants to let you know that he is moved by you. That he is passionate for you. Will you follow Thank you again for joining us on the Relevant Church Podcast. If this message has been impactful to you, let us know by sending an email to hello at thisisrelevant.cc. If God is impacting your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by investing at giving.thisisrelevant.cc. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for more messages like this one.